We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to take a moment to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to the community Discord, an e-learning course full of tips and tricks, and on top of all of that, will help get your show pushed to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or you have an existing show that you're wanting to grow hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcasting experience acceptance into the program is limited so get your application in today to apply go to bwhustle.com forward slash join check out the description box in this episode for more information but that's bwhustle.com slash join How to predict breakout players and who will they be? That's what we're talking about this week on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. I'm a Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. And as always, I'm joined by Sean Siegel, who you cannot find really on Twitter, but you can find all of his work over at Rotoviz. And Sean, this week we're you know, we're, we're on to actually week six now of Stealing Bananas, which is crazy. It feels like we just started yesterday and we're doing so many episodes that that – you know, we're only on week six. And so in some ways it's like, how are we only on week six? Cause we have tons of episodes out there. We did a little bonus episode between week five and six week five was the draft episode, but we're getting back to a, a broad theme this week, three episodes. We have a great guest for the third episode. We're going to talk through this concept in the first episode of which players have the potential to be sort of the 2022 first rounders, which is a way that you have always phrased things um, in some discussions that we've had that I've always loved. And I, I said to you, I, I want to dive into that. And I, I want to get more of your thoughts on that. And then we'll sit and we'll talk about who those breakout players for 2021 will be that are going to be 2022 first rounders. We'll give some names in the second episode of who we think will be at the top two rounds, even in 2022 drafts. So Sean, uh, 
what, what how are you doing? I haven't even introduced you yet. Uh, what are some of your initial thoughts on on this topic? Well, I think the fundamental element of building fantasy teams that allow you to have this incredibly high floor, right? You get a higher floor than people realize. If you combine a drafting protocol where you're looking for players who have an extremely strong chance to ascend, with our structural drafting that gives us the right positions in the right area of the draft, then even when you blow everything and a bunch of people get hurt and are right on some of your individual player selections, you come out at the end of the season, you're like, oh, I got fifth. And yeah, I'm not really sure how I did that because everything went wrong. You know, what was happening with those other seven teams really is just the fact that there are some very large structural advantages that you can employ within the context of a fantasy football environment that's gotten incredibly competitive. And people do understand, you know, they're, they're very much on the news. They understand player projections. They do look at player trajectories better. They understand all of these things. That doesn't mean that all of these exploitable windows are closed. And so I think that combining these two elements is what makes you successful at fantasy football. It puts you in a position to win those leagues. And if you're competing in the FFPC or similar contests, you're trying to win the $100,000 in best ball you're trying to win the $500,000 in the main event and in the FBG, then these are the types of teams that will do it for you. And you can do it in an evidence-based fashion as opposed to just going out and grabbing the trendy players. Yeah, I think my favorite part about all that really great stuff that you just said is this idea that targeting breakout players or searching for upside, people think comes with this significant floor. And it took me a few years to understand that that does happen when you only pair those players with then these sort of unsexy small win type bets that also can bust. And it's easy to look back and say, Oh, I was, I was chasing upside too much when your upside targets don't hit. The reality is, and this has sort of been my philosophy in the last several years. Now, if you build an entire roster that is, is chasing breakout stars, essentially, you're going to find a few <laughs> like you're not, especially if you know where to look. And that's what we're going to talk about all throughout this week, but you're going to find some that are going to be very helpful in, you know, even if everything else goes wrong to your point and in, in giving you stability in your lineup that you can also build around when things start to go wrong. The issue I think that people have with chasing upside and all those things is they are not actually targeting enough upside. They're not targeting enough breakout players. And to your point, when you target enough across your roster, it actually becomes more stable than it appears at first glance. And especially when the downside isn't, you know, th there are different um, issues with upside. Some people chase upside in the wrong way. And, and we talk about the, the types of bets that are small losses or big wins. And those are, I think, fairly easy to identify. It's players that are being pushed down just because of you know target issues or, or concerns but everything else on the profile is just beautiful so that is i think one of the most important points here now sean we talked a lot about running backs in the zero rb week two weeks ago for anyone who is just tuning in for the first time go back and check uh week four there's uh three episodes on zero rb where we broke down a lot about how to look at running back which types of running backs we're targeting at all the different points in the draft including the dead zone i want to focus a little bit more on wide receiver and i want to focus on 
particularly, and you've put this in the notes, and it was it was my first thought as well, is the second-year wide receivers, which is something that you have really focused a lot of your work on these last few, few years to kind of show that where we used to think maybe a decade ago the third year was the breakout year for the wide receivers, the second-year wide receivers is really an opportunity. And we have a fantastic rookie class from last year that is going into their second years, and it's just like I, I can't draft enough of all of them. Um, there are a few specific ones that I really like even more than others. And, and I'm excited to talk about those on the second show, but I want to talk a little bit about your second year wide receiver breakout model. Can you tell us sort of how you have looked at it, what you learned, were the important factors and what you're looking for in second year wide receivers and why that is such an important class of player to target in your drafts? Exactly. And we have a lot of information through the years on why second year wide receivers are really the key to fantasy football. If you're missing out on second year wide receivers, then you know your team basically just won't be successful unless everything else goes right for you. This is really one of the foundation elements back at the beginning of RoboViz when we had the fantasy douche working on some of these things. We had John Moore do great research and wide receiver research. A lot of what we wanted to do comes out of the work that I did with them at that time, and it was a start because there were guys like Jeffrey and Josh Gordon that we handed over to camera in 2013, and they were the guys who won championships for everybody that season. The following year, DeAndre Hopkins becomes the guy, and one of the things that is really surprising and this does show how fantasy football had a lot tighter recently is the Hopkins going into year two where he exposed to superstar status was like a seventh round pick. He'd had like 800 yards, hadn't scored a lot of touchdowns. And there were still some questions about as a first round pick, he'd been sort of a late first round pick. And some things that we look for, John Moore was in that Hopkins wasn't going earlier, wasn't getting the respect you, know, you look at guys like A.J. Brown who proved, you know, what a star he was right off the bat. I don't think that that is surprising. But I also like to combine it with some other elements to make sure we're looking at this question from a number of different angles. We can use the screener model, which doesn't include collegiate production, but gives you draft position, age, games, rookie scoring, that kind of thing. We have the range of outcomes tool, which uses historical matches to provide high, median, and low outcomes. We have Dave's official projections, which he uses the projection machine to come to, the projection machine having all kinds of detailed information. Once we put all of those things in context, and we can even look at the win the flex tool, right, which gives us implied points by ADP. When I see guys who are hitting in a number of different situations, when I have my breakout model giving an extra 50 or 60 points than what the wide receiver's implied point total is, then, I mean, that's a key hit right when you have to be loading up on these guys who have a gap between their ADP and what the model suggests. And we'll get into some of those specific players in our, our second episode of the week as, as we always like to, but one of the things that I think is really interesting as we think through sort of a, a broad way for people to buy into this uh, alongside everything you just talked about, about the evidence that's clearly there is this question that you asked, and, and I, I mentioned at the top of, you know, who will be the 22, 2022 first rounders? And we saw, it's easy to look now, like we we saw Justin Jefferson make this huge leap. And we saw CeeDee Lamb and, and T. Higgins really smash last year and make big leaps. They weren't first rounders, but they 
in redraft, they are now much, much more valuable or, or much more expensive than they were last year. And, I, I, you know, those are rookies making the big leaf. A, a second-year receiver that would be a great example would be A.J. Brown or D.K. Metcalf, who are going sort of where C.D. Lamb is going this year, and that's somebody we're certainly going to talk about in, his, in, in the second episode. They took – they had those secondary breakouts and took another leap. And so when you think about that way, you're like, okay, so if I'm targeting C.D. Lamb this year, I'm sort of targeting last year's A.J. Brown or D.K. Metcalf. And I think that helps kind of connect the dots a little bit Another way to sort of think about it is in in the dynasty landscape, right? Like there's a lot of people, I think in the Rotoviz community, there there's certainly a much more uh, much more of a willingness to accept youth. And and Sean, this is something you've preached about dynasty building through youth for a lot of years, and and I've learned a lot from you on that. There's in the broader dynasty community, there's this discussion between players that are productive now and players that are sort of built for the future players, these young players that you're just grabbing and, and stashing or something. And you've sort of made this argument that like you can win with just rookies basically in dynasty and, and then also have your cake and eat it too and, and have guys that are ascending in value as well. But dynasty is the other way I think to look at it. Like who are the players that, that ascend a ton of value in dynasty and our first rounders and dynasty startups the following year. And so though, I mean, when you think about it that way, you know there's going to be players every year there are that are going into their third year and specifically at at wide receiver it's a little tougher obviously for wide receivers to crack the first round of redraft but at least the second round the third round there's going to be wide receivers from this rookie class that are in that range next year and what that means is obviously that they had a very good year in 2021 and that's sort of i think the hard thing to imagine is like we talked about this way back in our first week on the projections pod we can't imagine these um, roles for some of these players right now. And so they project poorly and they don't look like they're going to get the opportunity. I think a really good example at running back that we've talked a lot about is Travis Etienne. As much as we talk about how much we love him, I've had other conversations with other analysts even, and they're like, I just can't get around to his role. What's his role going to be? And it's like, that doesn't matter because we don't know. There is chaos in the NFL season every year. And so the point of this whole line of thinking is if you're taking a long enough view and you're saying, this player is going to, or, or has a very good chance to be, either is going to be, I feel very confident in, or I feel he has a very good chance to be, and he's a worthwhile bet, going to be a potential first-round redraft pick down the line, maybe not next year, but maybe two years from now, maybe three years from now is the way you need to think about it to feel comfortable. This is a guy I took in my first round of my rookie drafts, and I think is very, very good. Or I took him in the first round last year, he had a pretty good rookie season, but not amazing for whatever reason. But I do still, you know, I see so much upside. I wouldn't trade him in Dynasty. I'm, I'm holding him in Dynasty. If you're thinking of that player like that, what I would suggest is, but you're not necessarily as excited in redraft because of role or things like that, that you are too certain about how 2021 is going to play out because we don't know the timeline. If you think that guy's going to be really good in 2023, there's a good chance he's going to be really good in 2021 because chaos creates opportunity in the NFL every year. We don't necessarily know where it's going to happen. But don't avoid guys just because you don't know about the role. For all we know, and we don't obviously wish injuries, but I'm using Etienne as an example of something were to happen to James Robinson, or he's just kind of pushed aside with a new coaching staff because he was a former UDFA, and this coaching staff drafted Etienne in the first round. Etienne could have the second half of this year could have the Jonathan Taylor year from last year. You know, there's the running back example of this, where next year we're taking Etienne in the first round, right? And so it's this this idea that if you think in the future this guy's going to be something, 
don't write out of your mind based on projections or week one idea of what their role is that it can't happen in 2021 for redraft because that is the mistake that I think people make. They really love guys, but they're not willing to be on them. And I've made it recently. I made it with Juju Smith-Schuster in his second year. I was a little bit too concerned about him. And he's another great example of a guy who was a good rookie year, was going in the fourth round. I thought that was just too high because Antonio Brown was still there. What happened? They both crushed because Juju Smith-Schuster was a good play that year in the fourth round. And the next year he was, and for some people, the number one overall dynasty player. I mean, he's that guy that made that leap in the second year. He's obviously since fallen back some, but the idea is don't write off that this could happen in 2021 or you're going to miss guys that you actually like, but you're trying to be too certain about what's going to play out this season in a league that we, we know we can't predict. That's Don't let that part ruin the the smart player selection side of it, right? And the Juju example is a perfect one. He goes from 190-some points to like 298 in year two. And he's a guy who had an early breakout in college. Everything about his profile suggested a secondary breakout from what he did as a rookie. He hit that. If you're trying to think of a way to understand what could happen with Travis Etienne, uh, pull up the weekly screener on Rotoviz. Look at the rush EP, the receive EP for Kamara and Mark Ingram when Kamara was a rookie that Saints offense, more explosive than what we expect the Jaguars offense to be. But even if you take some points out of there because the overall pie is smaller, I think you'll be much more excited about what ETN looks like. After the break here, we'll talk a little bit more about breakouts versus collapses and what that means in terms of drafting in 2021. I just want to take a second to thank you for tuning in to today's show. My name is Colin Kelly, co-host of the Road of His Overtime podcast, along with the great Sean Siegel. We do appreciate each and every listener. And as a thank you to each of you, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Road of His NFL pass. We're heading at full speed towards the season. Make sure you're ready. Get yourself access to all the content and tools up on the Road of His website. All you have to do is add the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout to get yourself that 10% discount. Now let's go and dominate the fantasy leagues in 2021 we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, Ben, one of the things I, I wanted to look at here is this idea of breakout versus collapse and, and also this idea of secondary breakout, right? We tend to think in terms of players as sort of gradually ascending and then gradually descending, and that's really not what tends to happen. 
the vast majority of players are going to have this big spike. They're going to get to this point where they're stars or not. And then the really good players are going to go for a while. And then you hit this roadblock that you collapse from. And so when we're looking at how we want to draft in redraft, what you mentioned in terms of dynasty, and we've talked about this from a couple of different angles. One of the things that we're hoping to do with the show is demonstrate how all of the foundational tenets interlock and help you get to the point that you need to be, this idea of talent over projections, which we just alluded to, this idea of thinking across formats and how Dynasty can help you in redraft. If you've got a guy that you don't want in Dynasty, why would you want him in redraft, right? You're basically saying that you think a collapse could happen. And if that collapse could happen this season, now every player is one play away from being out of the NFL. So we know that there are elements like that. We're not saying that there's not risk for every single player. There is. But when we look at how things change from season to season, there are some big historical trends that we want to be on the right side of. And as is so often the case, Blair Andrews has some great work on this in the wrong read. He's got a cool article, again, talking about how wide receiver experience and age is one of these very big exploitable loopholes. You go to his article, you look at the year-over-year change in target market share by experience, and we can see the players sort of going from year one to year two have this 1% jump in market share and everybody else declines, which again, we would expect that to happen because it's difficult to hold your production. That's the whole concept behind regression and how projections have to account for that kind of thing. So, you know, we go to year two, year three, year four, these guys are already having a 1% collapse. You go to year six, a 2% collapse. You think, okay, well, you know, 2%, that's not a big deal, but a 20% guy going to 18 may go from being very playable to not being that playable. Somebody who goes from 28 to 26 goes from that, you know, borderline first round pick into that area where you don't necessarily need to get them. And again, those are just averages. When we're talking about what can happen with individual players, we can see some big differences. Now, in order to illustrate that some more, if we look at wide receiver age and raw targets, right? Guys who are 21 years old, going from that first year to the second year, they have a 20 target increase. You can contrast that to people going from 23 to 24 and it's flat. Guys from going 26 to 27 and you're losing 10 targets. Again, these are big differences in terms of how this dynamic works. And then one of the other things I thought was cool because you do have to adjust for the actual context that the guy had the previous season. You might think, well, a lot of those jumps in targets are merely being accomplished by guys who didn't do anything in year one. So they actually have room to improve, which is something that established guys don't have. I mean, if you're already <laughs> at the 150 target level, obviously you're not gonna have this big growth in targets. But if you look at guys who scored 100 plus points as 21 year olds, those guys increased by more than 20 targets the next season. And then you jump down to, you know, year three, year four, year five, everybody else, every other age is in the negative. You're losing 10 plus targets. So this massive gap is one of the reasons why we're interested in players with these types of profiles. We're interested, number one, in the guys taking the secondary breakout, the secondary leap. And you reference some of them in terms of Justin Jefferson, CeeDee Lamb, T. Higgins. And then we're looking at some guys who may be disappointed in year one and now are actually pretty favorable in terms of price. Some guys like Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, Henry Ruggs. 
And then you can throw in someone like a Gabriel Davis, who is not that level of exposure, but is someone who, if he's actually the guy, and we've had a lot of reports, no, no, it's going to be Emmanuel Sanders. It's not going to be Gabriel Davis. And that's kind of jarring for a lot of us. That doesn't really fit the historical trends for where these guys are going, right? And so when we look at guys who are 21 years old, all of those guys that I mentioned, 21-year-old rookies, and then we have some players who are even a little bit older, but also interesting, and we like 22-year-old rookies, Claypool, Ayuk, Chenault. But I think putting it in that context helps us understand just how big these gaps are. Because I think the people are, are onto the idea of, okay, we, we know we want second-year guys, but what's a good price? And when you look at it within that context, it makes you feel more comfortable about a lot of the prices. And it, it makes it like, I've got to get exposure to these guys in every draft. Absolutely. Um, you know, he's too expensive at this point. You know, I've heard that with CeeDee Lamb. He's going ahead of Amari Cooper. He should. Um, for all the reasons Sean just said, we should expect C.D. Lamb to be ascending. We can still like Amari Cooper, but Amari Cooper's career best season was, I think, about 250 PPR points. Um, you know, he's missed some time. Maybe that's not entirely fair. Maybe he had a pace that was closer to 300 in a season. But he is in an age now, as Sean was saying, where in my dynasty leagues, I've always loved Amari, and I have him in several leagues, but I would be just com- just fine trading him. The problem is in a lot of, a lot of my leagues, like, I can't get good value for him because I'm playing with a lot of people like Sean who are not going to be buying Amari Cooper from me right now. CD Lamb is, you know, I, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people have been asking me, like I keep getting DMs, who's your AJ Brown this, this year? Because that's just what everything gets simplified to, I think, sometimes. I've come to realize that the closest thing is CeeDee Lamb. It's a second-year player. Everything on the profile is green. There are no red flags. There are no concerns. With Amari, there's maybe some slight concern that we've never seen him be a true do- target-dominant player. CeeDee Lamb's targets per out run in year one were up over 21%. They were close to Amari's second-best season of his career. He had one season that was up over 22%. Lamb did that right away as a rookie. And, and Amari also has some somewhat of a foot injury. And then he's also in this... Uh, Lamb is also in this phenomenal offense that everyone loves about Amari too, and there's the potential for that to really to to really blow up. And and I think really the argument that he's only going in the third round is probably that the Dak got hurt last year. Because if Dak stays healthy, I think there's a really strong chance that we're not all so confident that Justin Jefferson was clearly the best receiver in last year's draft. And I would say two years from now, we probably won't be so confident that Justin Jefferson was the best player in that draft. As much as I love Justin Jefferson, and I, I do think he's still very much worth targeting you're getting a discount to get CeeDee Lamb against Justin Jefferson, which last year and rookie draft season would have seemed weird, right? And nothing Lamb did really was wrong in year one. He didn't get as many routes. They put him in the slot too much. He earned those strong target numbers despite being in a lot more three wide receiver sets and two wide receiver sets, which there's been some great work done uh, by Hayden Winks over at Underdog. He showed that yards per out run for wide receivers is stronger in, in – sets that have fewer receivers. So Lamb was doing a lot of his work in, in sets that had more receivers and was being fairly target dominant when he was on the field. And we fully expect this year, all the reports out of camp are that he's going to be unleashed and actually get the full route. You know, he's not going to get cut down a little bit like he did last year when he was a rookie. And if you have Dak healthy for 16 games, like that's, that's the guy that's going to do what AJ Brown did last year. It's very, it, that is, his price is still not high enough is where I'm getting at. And, and you were just talking about price and being flexible to that. It feels like it's too high 
but it's not high enough when you understand A.J. Brown, you understand Juju Smith-Schuster and these guys that have been so important to those seasons in redraft in the past. There's nothing about, you know, Lamb's profile or whatever. We'll talk more about players in, in year two. The uh, show two. The other concept you were hitting on is sort of the flip side of this. The when when players fall off, and that if you're not willing to have a guy in dynasty, and, and look, I'm still fine holding Amari Cooper. I'm not selling him for anything. He's not a great example of this. But when you're not really excited about having somebody in dynasty anymore, why would you even want them in redraft? And you were talking about how the, the targets drop by about 10 per year from age 26 to age 27, I think was the number you said. That's over a massive sample. And some of that is guys sustaining or even potentially growing and having the age 27 breakout or, uh, you know, Stefan Diggs was around that rate. There's guys that have these late breakouts and, and hit their target ceiling for the first time. The reason the average is such a big drop off is there are guys that completely fall off, right? There are guys that kind of fall off a cliff and it's from, you know, compared to their prior volume, it's compared to their prior target numbers. And so we have to be aware of the fact that that can happen. And so the same thing, the same point I made before the break about, Young players that if you're saying in 2023, I think this guy's going to be a superstar. Why can't it happen in 2021? I apply that same thing to those those older players. If I think in 2023, this guy can't continue to be as productive as he is, I'm really careful. I'm very price conscious about investing in that player. Even though I think he's very good and his situation is great about investing in that player in 2021 in redraft. And that helped me last year, a, a player that I was very cautious with. I don't think I took in really any of my big drafts was Julio Jones. I loved Julio Jones. He was still very good when he was healthy. He did end up missing a lot of time. And, and also, to be fair, his efficiency was strong. His targets per outrun also fell last year. There was some minor dips in, in some of his metrics that I don't think are being talked about quite enough because he was still good when healthy. But there are a lot. I mean, I, I didn't have Adam Thielen last year, and he continued to sustain and be very good. But I'm not going to have Adam Thielen again this year because we already saw the really problematic injury season in 2019 for him, and he is up over 30. And we're we're getting to this point where I don't think two, three, four years from now, Adam Thielen's still going to be able to do what he's been doing for this strong stretch of his peak because no player sustain it for that long. It just doesn't happen, and that's what you were talking about. I mean, I, I think we all want every player to be sort of like Larry Fitzgerald is the example that I always come back to where he was amazing early in his career, had this incredible prime. And then he had three or four seasons that were really pretty awful because Arizona's offense was really bad. He was catching passes from was John Skelton or whatever that guy's name was and uh, Ryan Lindley and some of these dudes. And then he had a little bit of a resurgence after that and had a couple more thousand yard seasons. That type of thing is so rare. That makes Larry Fitzgerald one of the all-time greats that he was able to come back from like a three-year lull and still have a, a peak and be pretty darn good for the, the twilight of his career. If you go actually look at the history of football, guys have these short peaks more or less, like Sean was talking about, and they can be at different ages. That's why I think some of the, the peak age stuff that we talk about is tough because some dudes peak for two or three years, the 23, 24, 25 age range, and they're falling off by 26. And I think some of that's just, it's hard in the NFL when you're a high volume player and you're taking a lot of hits and all those things for your body to continue to be as primed and have all the same quick twitch abilities and all of those things, those little tiny things that, that differentiate between success and failure at the NFL, it's hard to sustain that for a lot of years. There's just not a lot of guys that have all the little intangibles so locked in that they can continue to do it for so long. So that fall off point, it comes faster than we think. And these are the players that I think consistently get overdrafted based on or, or compared to that risk because what drafters are doing, and this is the, the 
the moniker that I always say, don't pay for past production. They are paying for past production. They've seen it before with this player. They feel comfortable with that player being productive and getting volume and all those things. Unfortunately, at the NFL level, in, in, in some ways, by the time you feel comfortable with that player, you should be baking in a lot of risk because now we've shown you enough that he might be done with his peak, unfortunately. Now you're three years and you're saying, oh, this guy is always really good. Well, no, now he's probably not always going to be really good going forward and certainly not three years down the line. So, again, why not 2021 could be the year that that he really falls off. And those are the players that are the scariest for me to draft. It is. It used to be the opposite, and I understand where people are at, where I, I felt more comfortable drafting those guys. I felt a lot more scared drafting the rookies. Maybe this guy's going to bust. It is totally the opposite for me now where – those are the scariest guys for me to draft. They're going to be good in the first month of the season. There's going to be some that are going to make me wish I had more exposure to them in September. But by October, a lot of times, I, I almost every year, I, I remember, oh, that's why I don't have so much exposure. I'm actually in kind of an okay spot here because that player can't continue to do this forever at the NFL level. So that's sort of the flip side of all these points, and it, it really cuts both ways. It does. And you mentioned the why can't it be this season. The collapse part of that question is just as important as the breakout part of that question. I think we got the Gretch me if you can portion of the show with the CD lamb breakdown love lamb for 2021. Before we wrap this up, let's just go over quickly a little bit of the information on the running backs. We talked about collapses at some different positions. We talked about the breakout wide receivers could have this collapse at running back is again something that ties into zero rb but it's something that even unrelated to that you need to be very aware of as you're putting your teams together there's a lot of risk in the first especially the first but the first two rounds this season i did kind of an interesting look last year i think in terms of a, a dynasty related type of concept but it's one that again has a big impact on how we should think about redraft and that was looking at the 28 backs who'd had a top 100 runner drafted into their backfield in the last five years only two of those guys mark ingram and lamar miller were able to maintain value a year out right so you're talking about not just first round picks but top 100 picks and you know mark ingram one of these kind of funny names if you go through and you try to figure out well you know were there people who were successful in the dead zone you know during this time period that we really focus on talking about the dead zone and mark ingram is one of the only guys who's actually returned some decent win rates in the dead zone he's pulling up that group without mark ingram you know we were looking at even worse numbers i was never on ingram through those seasons i was wrong on him but he again was very much an outlier if we want to take that into running back scoring by age we again see these jumps where 21 year olds make a big jump in year two 22 year olds make a solid jump in year two everybody else declines and when you're starting to talk about when it happens, you have this big decline at age 25. You've got this big decline at age 27. So we're looking at some of these guys being very much risk. And we talk about breakout rate, failure rate, as opposed to just sort of average scoring also gives us a little bit of a sense. The failure rate at age 25 just absolutely explodes for running backs. And so when we're talking about the time period that you want to get out of these guys, it's earlier than what it feels like. And so you look at those guys in round one, you look at some of these players we might draft a little bit later. We've been talking about Travis Etienne and Javante Williams, you know, more or less constantly. And I look at this concept of, okay, where do we expect Melvin Gordon? Where do we expect uh, James Robinson to be in dynasty a year out? Well, 
we don't expect them to be in great shape at all, especially Melvin Gordon, but even someone like a James Robinson, when you look at the fact that undrafted guys tend to not get the benefit of the doubt from their team, even when they're as good as he was. And so we're talking about why not this year? That's the question because that decline in value is going to reflect something that happens on the field, especially over the second half of the season. And in the fantasy playoffs, we would think ETN and Williams are going to put up big points. Again, a reason why we'd be targeting them as opposed to some of the older guys who are going in round one. It's interesting. I'm going to get a little off track here because you just made some great points, but um, everything you said about James Robinson, I, I think kind of applies to Miles Gaskin. It's been my big question on Miles Gaskin, but uh, I'm a huge fan of his. I, I, I went to the University of Washington. I watched a ton of Miles Gaskin in college. He was awesome to have last year. I had him on a lot of teams. He's somebody that wrote up a bunch in, in Seal Signals in week one. And for whatever reason, after week one, it was Malcolm Brown and I think Naheem Hines, who, in, in, especially in shallower leagues, Hines was rostered in most leagues. But those are the guys that people were really going after after week one. And I was like, what about the dude that had a 76% snap rate. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I was really kind of pounding the table for Gaskin as the running back pickup that week. And I've got a lot of people tell me, you know, thanks to you, I had Gaskin on all my teams, which was really cool to hear. Um, and I, I had him in a lot of my own, but I'm not drafting him this year. And it's sort of for the same reason you just said about Robinson is he came out of nowhere as a seventh round pick last year. And we basically have more or less the same coaching staff. Yeah, he's the incumbent, but there's no real reason why it couldn't be, you know, Savon Ahmed this year or whoever coming out of nowhere. Jared Dokes, their new seventh rounder, to be to play an, an important role, especially um, for as good as Gaskin was, and he was phenomenal. Especially if if he struggles a little bit or are there are any concerns there, uh, everything that worked for him last year could sort of work against him this year, which was that they were just willing to roll with, you know, this guy that was really looking great. But I'm I'm curious your thoughts on him. Sorry, just to to kind of to cut back. Do do you feel the same way as James Robinson? Or um, I also get very slight Arian Foster vibes, you know, like I want to, I want to, I want to have some Miles Gaskin. So what are you thinking? It it really goes both ways on him. I want to be a believer. I like the underdog stories. I like when these guys are able to do the Arian Foster type of thing. And Gaskin, you go back. One of the things that separates him from a lot of the players who were either drafted late or were undrafted free agents and get a little bit of run, look good for a couple games, and then are gone again, is that Gaskin was a phenomenal college player, right? And so we talk about, okay, what do we want to look for in breakouts? And the fact that in year two, how good you were as a college player matters. Well, we saw that with Gaskin in that his year two, a lot of the things that came through from his collegiate profile then hinted at that breakout. He made the breakout. I think that he was a great college player and has now had a very good season across a wide range of metrics. Gives me more confidence that he can still be the guy, right? And especially the fact that completely unlike what the Jaguars did, everything about the Dolphins offseason suggests that they also think he can be the guy. And so it's tricky because his price is still in a range that I think is very dangerous. You know, I'm not avoiding fifth and sixth round picks at running back, but I want them to be guys I think could be monster league winners. And so, you know, you look at Gaskin, you look at the, the fact that Ahmed, we also think is good. He doesn't have nearly the profile that Gaskin does. But when you look at that, you think about the Dolphins' offense, then, you know, do I want to use a, a sixth-round pick or, in some leagues, fourth, fifth-round pick 
on someone who could be gone so quickly, but do we want to miss the Arian Foster breakout? He's one of the very few players, I think, where there's not a clear answer on him because you go through the draft and most players are a very clear thumbs up or thumbs down at their ADP. Gaskin, very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I'm, I'm glad I got your take on it because that's sort of how I feel. I will note one thing that I've been concerned about is when the Broncos traded up for Javante Williams, there was a, a brief report or comment somewhere during the draft that they were trying to get ahead of Miami. I think they, they maybe traded to one slot ahead of Miami, but they thought Miami had some indication that Miami might be considering Javante Williams, which is something that has sort of concerned me that maybe Miami was considering finding someone that they could pair with Gaskin. And it just didn't work out the way that they wanted it to. But we don't, I don't think we ever got any like strong confirmation on that necessarily. But that has led me to be a little bit more towards that earlier point I was making that maybe they're not fully committed. And that's obviously what we'd want to want to see to be able to take a running back in the dead zone. But it is an interesting case. The, the range is wide enough to your point. Like if he has another really good year and he starts to look like Arian Foster, he's a guy that could be a first round pick next year. I mean, if he's really great and the Dolphins take a step forward, it would be very interesting going into year three. I guess year four, he didn't really do much his rookie year. Because exactly, if you establish yourself at that level, you're going to get the push, you're going to get that jump of players who are going to then take the production once they can count on it. But then the risk at that point is going to be a lot worse than where he is right now. A little bit like what we see with Austin Eckler, where you needed to be in on him when he was a seventh, eighth, ninth round pick. Once you're drafting him in the first round, everything is stacked against you as opposed to everything being stacked for you. We're going to talk about players a lot more in the second show of this topic, but that's going to do it for today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel, and with me is Ben Gretsch, whom you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. If you want a very relaxed follow, someone who isn't going to spam you with a lot of information you don't want, you can follow me on Twitter. We'll have more episodes this week. Subscribe to our feed to get them when they're released. Please drop us a rating review on your favorite podcast app. And until we chat with you again, keep drafting.